Today's teaching text is Luke 11, verses 37 to 46. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts on the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Meg. Um, My name is Matt. If I haven't met you, uh, if you're here, if you're you're, uh, streaming online, glad to have you with us in any way. I want to talk, I became friends with Justin in high school. I became friends with Justin in high school. Um, He lived kind of around the block from me, and eventually he became the drummer in my high school band. Um, Yes, I was in a high school rock band, and yes, we really were called the Muffins, And yes, we won at High School Battle of the Bands every single year. (laughs) So that was my friend Justin. And anyways, he lived, uh, you know, up the street from me, very close. I could walk there. And as we became closer friends, um, I ended up going over to his house a lot. And entering his house was like entering a different world. They had a piano in the formal living room. And you weren't allowed to touch it. In fact, I wasn't allowed to go in the formal living room. uh, Or the formal dining room. And, of course, the first few times I went over to his house, I didn't, I didn't know this. I didn't understand this. And so I was just looking around. It's not like there were closed doors anywhere. And so I walked into the living room just to look at the piano. It was so shiny, I knew I shouldn't touch it. But I walked in just to look at it. And all of a sudden, Justin gasped. <gasps> and he yelled, Matt, you can't go in there. So I, I come back out into the hallway, and he says, look what you did. And I said, what did I do? You ruined the carpet. 
At this point, I was so confused. How did I ruin the carpet? My shoes were off. My socks were clean. I wasn't eating anything and spilling crumbs everywhere. Justin pointed to the carpet. Look, he said. Pointing down, you ruined the carpet. Your feet ruined the carpet. I did not understand what he meant. But what I came to learn was that Justin's family vacuumed the carpet in a perfect pattern. Look at this picture. Have you seen this before? I never have at my house, but maybe you've seen this before. He said, Matt, look what your feet did. You walked against the grain of the carpet. You created footprints. And so we stopped what we did. He went and got the vacuum, which he called a sweeper, which I hated. And then he vacuumed (laughs) the carpet to get the clean lines again. And I'm sure that I felt a mixture of shame and anger and confusion and maybe even a little bit of humor. But what I certainly didn't feel was welcome at Justin's house. And later, as we became closer and closer, I'd get invited to more and more events at Justin's house. And eventually, I got invited to a family dinner in the formal dining room. Now, I didn't grow up going to fancy dinners or going out to eat in fancy dinners. I thought I did, but I thought that Fridays and chilies were fancy dinners. So eating in Justin's formal dining room with his parents was a very nerve-wracking experience to me. Would I use the wrong fork for the salad? Would I accidentally chew with my mouth open? What if I forgot and, you know, put my elbows on the table? What do you do if you have to sneeze or cough or burp or worse? Could I wear my hat to the table? If I did, do do I need to take it off when we pray? Do we hold hands when we pray? Do I put my hands under or over when we hold hands when we pray? Do they pass the food to the right or to the left? What if they don't pass at all? Then how big of portions should I take? Do I get seconds or does the father of the household need to get seconds first? I didn't know. And I, what I did know is that I didn't know. I did not have the right table manners for this kind of family. And it made me feel embarrassed and anxious and ready for the meal to be over so we could just go to the basement and play video games already. Now what I didn't understand at that time was that eating together has social effects. And it has an important role even in shaping our family identity or in shaping our cultural identity. The reason table manners mattered wasn't so much because of health or hygiene, that's important, or just because being polite is super important. It was because they signified kind of who understands us and who doesn't, or who who is in and who is out. Uh, Table manners, if you think about it, they show us 
who was raised like we were raised. Which then tells us all sorts of things. It might tell us ethnic realities. That person eats like he's Polish. I'm half Polish. Uh, Like they're Korean. That person eats like they're from Ethiopia. They might tell us about economic or class realities. Do you know how to behave at a Michelin-starred restaurant or not? If you go get a tasting menu, are you going to complain that the first dish was so tiny, not knowing there's going to be 11 more coming? They show us how, on the other hand, you might cook and cut and prepare really, really cheap cuts of meat. All of this tells us moral realities, uh, the way we actually think a person is. And so we make subtle or sometimes not so subtle judgments when someone doesn't eat like us. Sometimes it's obvious. I think about like when a hardcore vegan and a serious, serious barbecue person are sitting down together for a meal. Um, perhaps the vegan might make moral judgments about the barbecue person, right? He might think, well, she doesn't really care about animals. She doesn't care about the environment because, you know, to process and keep all this, these cows alive, uses all this stuff. And, and the meat eater, she might think, this person is self-righteous. They don't know how to have a good time. Right? Whatever it is. These moral judgments about one another. Or, while we might never say it out loud, we might think, if this person wasn't raised not to chew with their mouth open, they probably weren't raised to be a morally good person. Like, there's probably a flaw in their character because of how they were brought up. And eating together is extremely important, but it's not without its concerns, especially if you're the guest. Uh, During the time of Jesus, hospitality was extremely important, right? Throughout the ancient Near East and in the Greco-Roman culture at large. In fact, if you read, have read any like Greek mythology, you know, Homer, the Iliad, all that stuff, You find that the protagonists, the heroes, they're often fed by those they encounter on their journeys along the way. They're journeying through strange lands and people invite them in to feed them. In ancient times, travelers would often have been dependent upon their hosts for food. And hosts were often inclined to treat guests as they would like to be treated when they were traveling. So they invite people in, they take care of them. But even in this culture of hospitality, to be a guest is vulnerable. In these same stories, these same Greek mythology stories, the heroes frequently fall into jeopardy as their hosts take advantage of them because of their state of dependence. See, eating entails, quite literally, opening the body to substances beyond it. And so there's a little bit of weakness there. To be the guest is to be in vulnerability, to experience a state of vulnerability. Think about it. If the host has ulterior motives, 
the guest may be poisoned, even. Or, at the very least, they may go away hungry. Somewhere in between is what happens in Mueda, which is the largest city in Mozambique. I liked this story. It's said that when a host, they're a very hospitable culture, but when a host has had enough of their guest, maybe you're talking a little bit too much or eaten in a strange way, they put enough chili in the food to make it inedible. So if you're ever in Mueda in Mozambique and you're like, this food keeps getting spicier and spicier, Take note, maybe you're not the best guest. (laughs) My friend Justin had invited me to dinner. And even though I was unsure of what it would be like or if I would have bad manners and embarrass myself, I still showed up because Justin was my friend and he invited me. When I spent time in our scriptures this week, I was struck by three invitations around a table. Inviting Jesus, Jesus inviting me, and inviting the other. First is inviting Jesus. Look at the first of our verses from today. Luke 11, verse 37 says, When Jesus had finished speaking... A Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. Here's what I want you to hear in this verse. Jesus always moves toward those who invite him in. A Pharisee invited Jesus into his house. And what I love about this is this is not the only story like this in Luke. It's a pattern. It's a theme that shows up over and over again. Whenever, I couldn't find a time, maybe you can, but whenever Jesus gets invited in by whoever, he always shows up. He's willing to take the vulnerable posture of a guest. Uh, Luke 5.29 says, then Levi had a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Jesus plays the guest in the homes of tax collectors. A Jewish tax collector was someone who basically was betraying their Jewish people by working for the Roman state that was oppressing the Jewish people. Uh, They were unliked by the majority of people. They were an embarrassment to their people. But Jesus feasts with them. In Luke 5, Jesus feasts with them. And by doing this, later on in Luke 5, it says he gets in trouble. He gets in trouble with the Pharisees. And the reason is the tax collectors were the enemies the Jewish people. And by eating with the enemies, Jesus has become an enemy of the religious leaders. He has been socially connected to the wrong people. And there's a fabric through eating together that is not easy to tear apart. He is now connected to those people. 
And Jesus doesn't just stop at eating with Levi and this whole feast of tax collectors. Later on, much further on in the book, in Luke 19, he eats with Zacchaeus. And this time it says in chapter 19, verse 7, all the people saw this and began to mutter, quote, he, Jesus, has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Jesus is willing to show up as a guest even amongst sinners or enemies. This time tax collectors, literally the enemies of the Jewish people. Sinners is that language for those who are enemies of God. Jesus always moves towards those who invite him in. And then in Luke 7 verse 36 it says this, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. This is just like our verse today. In chapter 11, verse 37, Jesus is invited to dinner and he shows up and reclines at the table. Now he's eating with his critics, his despisers, those who are plotting to take his life. Jesus always moves towards those who invite him in. Then later Jesus shows up to eat with women. This is also in Luke 7, where he's at the Pharisee's house. A woman shows up, and and what we're told about this woman is that she's from town, and that she has, quote, lived a sinful life. And then what she does is she famously pours this expensive perfume all over Jesus, and then she's weeping, and she uses her tears to wet the feet of Jesus. And then she uses her hair Clean the feet of Jesus. And the Pharisees, who are in the role of host, they're disgusted. And they say, if this Jesus was actually one of us, or better yet, if he was a prophet, like he claims to be, he would know what this woman has done. And he would not let her touch him like that. But Jesus allows it. And then in Luke 10, verse 38, we hear about Martha, who sees Jesus going by and invites him in to her home. And Jesus shows up. He comes. Even when it's primarily to hang out with only, or primarily at least two women, with Martha and Mary. Jesus is willing to show up as a guest. God, we're told in different places in Scripture, God shows no partiality. Jesus always moves towards those who invite him in. All of us probably need to hear that. Some of us probably really need to hear that today. Some of you might be afraid to really ask Jesus to show up in certain places or at certain tables in your life. Because what if he says no? What if he won't go there? Or what if he won't go with that kind of person? The Jesus we find in scriptures always moves towards those who invite him in. And if you don't believe that, 
maybe because of circumstances of life, I would just encourage you to ask again. If possible, invite Jesus in again. See what happens. There's nothing that will disqualify you from receiving his presence, his companionship, or his love. So invite him in. Then, the second invitation around the table is actually from Jesus. So the first is our invitation towards Jesus, to Jesus. Will you come? Will you come to the table? Will you come eat with me? Will you come to my house? Then the second is actually from Jesus. See, if we invite Jesus to our table, he will show up as a guest. That's good news enough. But he is not an idle guest. Turn again to Luke 11, same verses, 37 and 38. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. The next verse. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Jesus, in the very first act of showing up there, before the food is served, before the meal starts, has already transgressed the social markers of who's in and who's out. A word hasn't even been said yet. From Jesus' very first action, the Pharisee is aware of his bad table manners. Now, even though Jesus is the guest, and he's in a place of vulnerability, he, he might be tempted to say, you know, oh, I'm so sorry I forgot. Oh, it's been a busy day. Let me go wash. I didn't mean to offend you. Uh, you know, I want to be a good guest. Let me go wash my hands. But even though he's the guest, in a place of vulnerability, that's not how he responds. See, Jesus is centered and grounded in who he is in God. And so he uses this as an opportunity to invite the Pharisees into living a more integrated and authentic life. As one who is himself the embodiment of wholeness, of what it means to truly be human, Jesus invites the Pharisees to live in such a way that their inner life matches their outer life. Uh, the next verse, he says in verse 39, Now then, you fair, so they say, hey, you didn't wash your hands. And he says, now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside, you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Every time Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, Anyone with any bit of religious authority today ought to pay close attention.
attention. Now, that especially includes me as a pastor standing up here uh, telling you what I've heard as best as I can from God. But really, anyone who makes any decisions, anybody who ever plays the role of host where God's name is invoked, anyone who gets to decide who gets to belong should place themselves in the position of the Pharisees, of the religious leaders of our day. And so Jesus invites us to live an integrated and authentic life where what's going on inside us matches what's going on outside us, what other people see, where our interior life and our external life are one and the same. And he uses this biting language to get the religious leaders to really confront what's beneath the surface of their lives. He says, you're obsessed with cleaning the outside of the cup when the inside of the cup is full of greed and wickedness. Later he says, you're like an unmarked grave. You're like a plot of land that looks like it's alive with grass, plants showing up. But really, people are walking over a pile of dead bones. There's no life in there. You're dead inside. The language couldn't really get any sharper. There was a terrible story, um, a real scar on the church, especially the evangelical church, that happened in 2006. And 2006 is when I got accepted and started going to undergrad for ministry. It was this big year for me in excitement. I'd only been a Christian for about two years before that. And then I hear of this story, and it's deeply affected me. See, at that time, there was a man named Ted Haggard, and he was the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. So kind of the biggest organization that evangelicalism had and still has, he was the president of. He was also the pastor of a church that uh, had 15,000 people roughly. And Haggard as pastor and as president of the NAE was um, a, a vocal opponent of gay marriage, of gay rights. He spoke out quite often, both from the pulpit and in advocating for political laws banning same-sex marriage. Uh, His church was in Colorado Springs, which is also where Focus on the Family has their headquarters. And a pastor speaking like that, with that platform, wasn't that shocking at the time, especially an evangelical pastor. Until a man came forward claiming that Haggard had been paying him for sex and for crystal meth for three years. And first, Haggard uh, denied all of it adamantly. 
He said he has never been unfaithful to his wife and there is not a single problem in their marriage when it comes to fidelity. Then he said this, put on the screen, he said, I have never done drugs ever, not even in high school. I didn't smoke pot. I didn't do anything like that. I'm not a drug man. We're not a drinking family. Do you see how he's sort of setting up the way they at least drink, the way the the social fabric is set up? We're not a drinking family. I don't smoke cigarettes. I don't socially drink. We don't socially drink. We don't have wine in our house. We don't do that kind of thing. Do you hear how he's doubling down on these boundary markers to define himself and his family. Instead of addressing what's going on beneath, what's going on inside the cup, he wants you to see the outside of the cup is clean. Trust me. Come to my house. We don't even have wine in my house. Look at my fridge. There's not even a light beer in there. (laughs) We don't do that kind of thing. And I like to imagine Jesus grabbing him by the shoulders at this point. Shaking him, going, Ted, Ted, you invited me to your table. You think I'm going to let this fly? That's Jesus' response. James Dobson's response, the founder of Focus on the Family, was to come to Ted's defense and even shame those who would try to say anything other than this, to say, it is unconscionable that the legitimate news media would report a rumor like this based on nothing but one man's accusation. Ted Haggard is a friend of mine, and it appears someone is trying to damage his reputation as a way of influencing the outcome of today's election, especially the vote on Colorado's marriage protection amendment which was to ban same-sex marriage, which Ted strongly supports. So he's trying to build up Ted's character by saying, you know, Ted supports this political agenda that we all do, and there's no way Ted would do this. Well, shortly after that, that man felt it necessary to share the voicemail in which Ted Haggard's voice is found uh, asking to purchase methamphetamine. Eventually, more and more comes out and is um, made clear that it's true, and Ted's church fires him. The National Association of Evangelicals asks him to step down, and Haggard confesses to many of the allegations. Three years later, in 2009, it was discovered that around this same time, there was uh, a young man um, in the church that Ted was having long-term same-sex relationship with. And this young man said that it was not a consensual relationship. Um, Since then, Haggard has started a new church that he's still pastoring in the Colorado Springs area, and allegations are coming up at that church. Now, this is obviously a strong example, right? But I share it because it exists. And unfortunately, I could spend the next hour telling more and more stories 
just within the evangelical world. I don't even have to go to what has happened in the Catholic Church. This level of religious hypocrisy did not end with the Pharisees. We can't just demonize the Pharisees and say, ugh, I'm so glad Jesus came and now we're free from legalism. It lives on in any of us who've been given the slightest bit of leadership in the church. And you likely have more leadership in your church, in your religious sphere, than you think you do. See, if any of us invite Jesus to our table, which I encourage you to do, he will show up as our guest. But he is not an idle guest. He invites us to become whole. And what's amazing about this is that he wants this for our good and for the good of others. It's not just that hypocrisy is sort of bad just because God doesn't like it. It's not like God just doesn't like it arbitrarily in some random rule. God doesn't like it because it's bad for us. When you live that sort of way, it causes this internal chaos, this dissonance within, this unrest. Unless you numb yourself enough, it will be there. And not only that, but in the context of religious leadership, this sort of dissonance within yourself often leads to abuse and trauma towards others. It keeps others from encountering the goodness of God. Uh, A few verses later, past what we read today in Luke 11, verse 52, Jesus continues in his series of woes to the Pharisees, right? He's on a roll. And he says, Woe to you, experts in the law, in verse 52, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. I really like the way that Matthew says this in his gospel. This is in chapter 20. 3, verse 13. In this, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. In other words, your disintegrated lives keep you from receiving the fullness of life in God, and hinders others from receiving it. It's a big deal. I mean, imagine for a moment the lives of the two men we know about in Ted Haggard's life that he had sexual relationships with, all while he was saying that same-sex relationships were sin from the pulpit. What does that do to somebody? One of them was his congregant. And another was someone far from God. And Haggard basically shut the door of the kingdom of heaven right in their faces. 
He told them their lives were sinful while simply adding to their shame and hiddenness. Now, instead of patting each other on the back because we're not as fallen as haggard, I encourage us all to be open to the places we might do this in perhaps more subtle ways, more hidden ways, ways that will require the Holy Spirit to bring to light in our lives. And so I ask you this question to take a moment with. Where are the places of dissonance where things are not in alignment within your own soul? Where does your external and internal life not match? If I had to put words in the Pharisees and Jesus' mouth around this table, they would essentially be this. Uh, The Pharisees, at least the one Pharisee who's hosting, look around the table and ask the question, who is here who doesn't really belong here? We kind of hear that response to Jesus then. Jesus didn't wash his hands as was customary and culturally appropriate. And so they're asking, does he really belong? They're surprised. What, What is going on? Why is this guy here? But when you hear the words of Jesus through there, Jesus essentially looks around the table and asks the question, who's not here, and how can I help them belong here? Pharisees are asking, who's here who doesn't belong? Jesus is asking, who's not here who needs to belong? Luke eleven forty six. Jesus replied, So he's already critiqued the Pharisees and then some experts in the law who their role is way too similar to the Pharisees. So they're like, you you realize you're kind of hurting, you're you're insulting us. And then Jesus says, you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. He has this righteous anger with the religious leaders because they place heavy burdens on people. Jesus himself goes so far to say that his burden is light. That when you enter into his yoke, have it placed on your shoulders, it's easy. It's a way of life that actually works because he takes the weight of it. So he's angry at these people. The yoke of Jesus is meant to be light, but these representatives of God weigh people down. As gatekeepers of God, they seem to do everything they can to make the doorway smaller, smaller, smaller. They're more concerned with who doesn't belong than with who they can help to belong.
my hope for us. There are a lot of empty seats in this building. I hope around your dinner table there's one or two empty seats. If not, get another chair. And I hope when you look at those empty seats, you ask the question, who is not here yet who belongs? Jesus always moves towards those who invite him in. Whoever they are, tax collectors and sinners, religious leaders, women at the time. And then Jesus invites us and them to live an integrated and authentic life. Right? Even when Jesus shows up to Martha's house, um, she doesn't get off the hook. Right? He's, he's saying, Martha, why are you busying yourself with all these things? That, that there's always, Jesus is never an idle guest. He will be with us. He is always with us, but his presence is always at least a little bit disturbing. And then Jesus wants us to invite the other, a person that we might think of initially, kind of if we pay attention to our our sort of knee-jerk reactions, the person we think who shouldn't belong is the person we ought to work towards helping to belong. And all of this is around the table of God. And so I'd ask on instinct, just first instinct, who do you think doesn't belong at this table? Who comes to mind? Let it pop up in your imagination. Imagine that person or people. Who do you think doesn't belong? Or better yet, who has historically been excluded from the table of God. Because here's what we have to note in this interaction. Jesus is willing to offend the host for the sake of the guest not yet invited. Let me say it again. Jesus is willing to offend the host for the sake of the guest not yet invited. Friends, if we invite Jesus to our tables, he will show up as our guest. That is good news. But he's not an idle guest. He calls us to wholeness, and he will not sit by if we exclude others from our tables. So who can you invite to your table? Think very practically, like your table at home. Or Your table at a restaurant. Who can you invite? In closing, I want to draw something to your attention here. Look at this image again of the table. Notice how the image is cyclical. Okay, that's on purpose. It's not just one, two, three. This sort of step where we invite Jesus. Jesus invites me to wholeness. Then I invite others in. Comes back into inviting Jesus. And uh, I was struck by this. 
by inviting the excluded ones, the ones who have been othered, the ones without a table, by inviting them, you are inviting Jesus. Look what Jesus says at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Why? For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous, the one who in all relationships is in the right place, right with God, right with others, even right with our created world, the righteous will answer him, Lord, come on. When did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger and other, and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothes you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, You did for me. When we are satisfied with empty seats at our table, this cuts to the heart of Jesus because he takes it very personally. If you invite them, you're inviting me. That's a way you invite me to your table. So without guilt, but with conviction, who will you invite to your table? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that in Jesus you show us that you're always moving towards us. That when we invite you, you show up. We don't have to be sort of sitting, waiting by the door. Is he going to come or not? Did I make too much food? (laughs) Is this person not going to show up? You always show up. Help those of us who simply need to receive that this morning to sit in that truth and receive it. And those who have received that truth and gotten too comfortable... May you convict us, God, that you don't sit as an idle guest, but call us towards wholeness and invitation to those who need a table to eat at. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, may this be so of us. In Jesus' name, amen.